Well, we're continuing today with our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I hope that you've been studying through it in your personal worship to kind of prepare your hearts for what we talk about here on Sunday. But if you're kind of just joining us, we're calling this study Blessing and Mission, and I'm going to explain it again real quick for those of you who are new. We're calling it Blessing because contrary to what you might be tempted to think, as you begin to experience, frankly, the discomfort of this message... What Jesus here is describing for us and inviting us into is actually the truly blessed life. Here's what happens if you study this message, it studies you. As you dig into it, it digs into you. As you begin to unpack it, you go, "Uh uh-oh, at some point, because you realize it's unpacking you. As you examine it, it hands to you, piece by piece, bit by bit, like this spiritual MRI of your life, and it reveals things to you that you either knew were there and didn't want revealed... Or you kind of maybe suspected because you had a pain in your side, but you didn't want to go to the doctor because you didn't really want to know what it was or what it might entail or what might need to be done. Okay, here's what that is. It's the blessed life. And it's the blessed life because what Jesus is inviting you to is life with Him. He's giving you the MRI so that you can see you can't fix yourself and come to the one who can indeed fix you. He's giving you the MRI so you can see that you're polluted in a way that you can't undo and come to the one who can make you clean. He's inviting you bit by bit, piece by piece, line by line, word by word to come to Him in true repentance and by faith receive His forgiveness and then by the power of His Spirit in accordance with sermons like this, with His Word in community with other Christians, serious community, real community, You learn to follow Christ. You learn to live with Him. See, the world comes to us and packages up all kinds of different things and then gives it to us as like the total package, which is mostly unattainable by most of us, okay, and says, this is the blessed life. And here's what happens to those who actually are able to attain it. They find themselves emptier than they ever were before because they finally attained everything that they thought would bring them blessing. And it's not enough. Jesus says, follow me. It's not going to be an easy road, but it's a blessed road. It's a joy-filled road. It's a forgiveness-filled road. It is a meaningful, purposeful road that ends in eternity. Look, He's inviting us into life together with Him. That's the blessed life. So we're calling it blessing and then mission because that also is the kind of life that takes the otherwise invisible Jesus, the I can't see Him, smell Him, hear Him, taste Him, make an appointment to go and see Him, Jesus in this world, okay, visible to the rest of the world. And how does that happen? As the rest of the world, as the people in my family and in yours, as the people in my office and in yours, as the people in our school and in your school and out in the world and in the community and in the world at large through us as a church, begin to see that this invisible Jesus is real because they see the the reality of this Jesus at work in us. So blessing and mission. And what I want you to see today is we jump back into this sermon by Jesus, and it's His sermon, please remember that, is that the blessed life that He describes for us and invites us into again and again and again and again and again as we go study it, and it, well, then studies us, is one that is lived by people who have an accurate appraisal. They have a right understanding of, first of all, themselves, secondly, of the value of the gospel, and thirdly, of their heavenly Father. And there's a very natural progression of these ideas. And I hope you see that as we move through this text. So we pick up our study today in Matthew 7. Beginning in verse 1, where Jesus gives us a general principle in the first part of this verse that He later then illustrates, but first, the principle. He says this, He says, "'Judge not, 
that you be not judged. So there's the principle, and it is a principle that has become increasingly popular in 21st century America. And I say that because a couple of years ago, I was reading this article, and it was talking about the most frequently quoted verse in the Bible. And it said, you know, it used to be that the most frequently quoted verse in the Bible was John 3.16, this verse on forgiveness. Not anymore. Now, the most frequently quoted verse in the Bible is Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And I want you to consider why that is. I think that's because we've gone from being a culture that believed in right and wrong, and thus in the need for forgiveness, to a culture that does not believe in right and wrong, and in fact, in which the only wrong that you can commit is to tell someone that they're wrong. And guys, for that sin, there's no pardon. There is no forgiveness. So, judge not that you be not judged, they say. But wait a minute, is that what Jesus is saying? Because I don't think it is. He's not coming to us with this verse and saying, hey, um, newsflash, okay? There really is no such thing as right and wrong, guys. The whole biblical standard of right and wrong thing is out the window. And please, whatever you do, don't go into the world and tell anyone that there's such a thing as right and wrong. In good grief, don't tell anyone that they, well, might be wrong, lest you be judged by them as having committed the unpardonable sin of being intolerant. There it is. That's the label. And it's written with permanent ink. He's not saying that. And in fact, if you think about his life, which was perfect in accordance with the biblical standards, and you think about his death, which was required to save us, why? Because our lives have not been perfect in accordance with the biblical standards. It seems to me that Jesus authenticates right and wrong with the entirety of his person, with the whole of his work. So he's not saying, okay, there's no such thing as right and wrong, and whatever you do, don't judge anybody as being right or wrong, particularly wrong, because then you get the label intolerant, you can't get it off, and there are major social and, and maybe even personal consequences. What he's saying is that when you do critically evaluate someone, according to the very real biblical standards of right and wrong for which he lived and died and wrote in his blood, authenticated entirely, do so as one who knows just how far short of those same standards that you yourself have fallen. Lest you be judged, not by your culture, but by the Lord God Himself. That's a bigger deal. And so what Jesus is saying here is He says, judge not, and what He means by that is other people with a prideful, haughty, self-righteous, critical, throw in there whatever else word you'd like, spirit that you not be similarly judged by God is the point. And then He says, just to make it further, for with the judgment that you pronounce on other people, you will also be judged by God is the idea, and with the measure that you use towards others, it will also be measured by God to you. And you're like, whoa, that kind of freaks me out. And I thought, by the way, that if I gave my life to Christ, if Jesus was my Savior, I'm free from the judgment of God. And that's true. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, hey, um, if you've really given your life to me, if in fact I am your Savior, you will not live like this. And if you consistently live like this, maybe you haven't. 
He's coming and saying, look, if the, if my gospel has truly taken root in your heart, it will not produce the fruit of a prideful, haughty, self-righteous, critical spirit. It will produce the fruit of abject humility. I mean, if we rewind the tape all the way back to the very beginning of this sermon that we looked at five weeks ago, what are the opening words of the message? Because here's what they're not. It's not blessed are the prideful in spirit. Blessed are the haughty in spirit. Blessed are the self-righteous in spirit. Hey, you know what? Blessed, these guys are awesome, are the critical in spirit, and we all love them. The whole world loves them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning blessed are those who have an accurate appraisal of themselves and of their sin and of the overwhelming amount of debt that their sin has created for them with Almighty God, a debt that they cannot ever possibly even imagine a way to begin to pay the tiniest portion of it so big. And yet who have been driven by that debt to Christ. And in His perfect life, and in the sacrifice of His infinitely valuable, for He is God and man, perfect blood in their behalf, have found full payment for their sin. Blessed are those people, because those people will then display also the reality of that and their attitude toward others. They will be humble and compassionate and gentle toward other broken and fallen people, even when those other broken and fallen people are frankly broken and fallen in different places and in different ways than they are. So Jesus says, judge not other people with a prideful, haughty, self-righteous, critical spirit that you be not judged similarly by God. For with the judgment that you mete out, that you pronounce on other people, you will also be judged by God. And with with the measure that you use towards them, it will also be measured toward you. And then to drive the point home even further, Jesus says this. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye, and which really ought to be a whole lot more obvious. I mean, there's a real logic to what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you know your own sin more than anybody else's, your own struggles more than anybody else's, your own heart more than anybody else's. So why are you more critical of other people than of you? Why is their problems more obvious to you than your problems are to you, or how can you say, Jesus continues, to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye, and then he says, you hypocrite. Now, hang on, it sounds like he's being judgmental. Intolerant, doesn't it? You almost want to say, you know, it sounds like he's being unkind, but I would ask you, is there a more kind person who has ever lived than Jesus? Because we might want to redefine what kindness is and include in our kindness our willingness to humbly, compassionately, and gently, and yet directly speak the truth to one another in love. This is a message we need to hear without which we are impoverished. He's doing us a favor. And that too is kindness. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, which incidentally is exactly what you and I are supposed to do. 
Jesus is not saying, listen, don't worry about anybody else's specs. Seriously, just focus on yourself. He's not saying that. In fact, this implies an affirmative duty on me and on you to go to one another about the speck in our eyes or in their eyes that they can't see or maybe they can't get out on their own. I mean, we forget that Jesus lived in a culture in which every bathroom, you know, did not have a mirror, guys. The people who had mirrors, well, they were the rich and famous, and the mirrors that they had were not nearly as clear as the mirrors that we had. So when they had a speck in their eye, there was not a mirror with which they could go to and see it clearly enough to take it out for themselves. So what were they reliant on? Their brothers and sisters. Hey, man, I can't get this out of my eye. You know, can you just kind of come over and I'm going to try not to blink and pluck this dude out for me? We have specks not in our eyes, but in our hearts. Sin in our souls. And Jesus is saying affirmatively to us, hey, we're supposed to help each other out with that. That's real community. That's life together with one another as we learn to live life together with Christ. But, he says, before you approach your brother or sister or anybody else, for that matter, take a real accurate appraisal of yourself so that when you approach them, you don't approach them pridefully or haughtily or self-righteously or critically with a heart really to put down, but instead that you approach them compassionately, humbly, gently, and with a heart to build up, with a heart to help. Guys, the blessed life that Jesus describes and then invites us into in this sermon is one that is lived by people who have an accurate appraisal, first of all, of themselves, of their own brokenness, of their own desperate need for Christ. And then secondly, of the value of the gospel, a value that you don't see until you first accurately appraise yourself. Now I appreciate the gospel because I've... I've looked into me. And so having called us to an accurate appraisal of ourselves, he now speaks of the value of the gospel. He says this, verse 6, he says, Do not give to dogs. And by the way, the picture that Jesus is painting is not of a cute little pair of Maltese, okay? He's painting the picture of a pack of wild dogs. Flea-infested, burr-infested, stink-infested, rabies-infested dogs. Scavenging herds of dogs that would roam the hills of Galilee and eat out of the trash dumps. When these dogs came down the street, you know, your kids didn't run out to pet them because nice doggy, no, 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 not nice doggy. You're taking them in the house. You're shooing the dogs away. Very graphic picture. He says, do not give to dogs what is holy, what is other than, what is separate from, what is markedly different and in this case, markedly different in value from absolutely everything and everyone else. And then he says, and do not throw your pearls, which is significant because in the ancient world, the pearl was the single most valuable object in the world. That's how it was regarded. Do not throw your pearls, he says, before pigs, lest the pigs who think that you're giving them food, not something infinitely more valuable, and who only care about their appetites, pounce on them because they think it's food, but when they realize, you know, this doesn't really taste very good, and it certainly doesn't satisfy my appetites, they then get angry and they trample underfoot what is more valuable than anything else in the world and turn and attack you. And you're like, okay, very graphic images, I see the pictures. 
I have no idea what this means. What is Jesus saying? Well, he spent five verses telling us not to be pridefully discriminating. And he's coming here and he's saying, okay, don't be pridefully discriminating here either, but do be discriminating in the sense that you're to use good judgment with what you do with the gospel because the gospel is holy. The gospel is the pearl. It's the single most valuable object in all the earth. In fact, listen to what Jesus says six chapters later, Matthew 13, verse 45. He says, the kingdom of heaven, which is ours, incidentally, through the gospel is like a merchant in search of what? Because here it is, fine pearls. So now he's painting a different picture. He's painting the picture of a guy who is a merchant, and he is not some mere jewelry store owner. No offense to you if you are, but this guy is big time. This is one of these rare few merchants who moved and operated and did business in the pearl shakedoms of Persia. This is a guy who would supply a whole geographical area full of jewelry stores with pearls. This is the picture of a man who has spent his life building a pearl empire and who one day is invited into the tent of one of the pearl sheikhs. And after the endless, you know, and ritualistic greetings and formalities and whatnot, he's invited into the deepest chamber of the tent. And in that chamber, by the light of some lamps, he sees the pearl shake pull out a silk purse. And reaching into the silk purse, he watches as this man gingerly extracts this giant, flawless pearl of perfect proportions. And this merchant's heart is suddenly filled with joy because he realizes this is what I've been looking for all of my life. So what is it worth? What is it worth? Because the blessed life that Jesus describes for us and invites us into is one that is lived by people who have an accurate appraisal, A, of themselves, and then B, of the worth of the value Of the gospel, Jesus answers the question. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who upon finding one pearl of great value waited a couple years and then sold some small portion of, you know, what he had and kind of when he got around to it, bought the thing. And that's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And that's not what it's worth. He says that he went and immediately is the implication and he sold, pause for effect, all that he had. And he bought it. Why? Because he realized this is the single greatest treasure on earth. This is what I've been looking for all of my life. This is the most important thing. And everything else in life is subservient to it. I mean, it's like as I line up my priorities, man, it's like this is one A, B, C, D all the way through Z. And then there are two, but two is like way down here. It deserves and demands our all. And so Jesus, in chapter 7, verse 6, in this Sermon on the Mount, he captures that same image of the pearl. He says, guys, don't give to dogs what's holy, and don't throw the pearl of the gospel before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack them because, or turn to attack you because they don't care about the gospel. They don't see their need for the gospel. They don't recognize the value of the gospel. Here's what they care about, and we've got to take this to heart. They care primarily about their appetites. Man, this is a hard sermon. So what are the categories? Well, on the one hand, we have dogs and pigs who despise the gospel in the way that they treat it. They trample it. 
as they move on to what they really want, which is whatever it is that's going to satisfy their appetites. And on the other hand, we have the pearl merchant who prizes it above all things, who sees in it everything that he's been looking for all of his life and makes the whole of his life subservient to it. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, you know, when you're dealing with the people in your office and your family, say you need to be judged, you need to show good judgment because some are looking and some will merely trample. But I think before we even get to them, we need to start with us. We need to say, all right, which category am I in, honestly? And like, what does the whole of my life say? What does the way I spend my time say? What does the way I spend my money say? What is the, what I think about and, and obsess about say? What is it? As I line up my priorities in truth, I look at the spiritual MRI and it tells me not what I say to everybody, but what it really is. Where is the kingdom of heaven? Where are the appetites? Very revealing sermon by Jesus. So the blessed life is one that is lived by people who have an accurate appraisal, first of all, of themselves, secondly, of the value of the gospel, then lastly, of their heavenly Father. And this too is important because it's difficult to deal with the specks or logs in our eyes. It's really hard to go to somebody and say, "Um, humbly, I think maybe you have a speck in your eye particularly if it's somebody who doesn't even acknowledge the existence of specs. It's hard to do. It's hard to sit still when some brother or sister who has approached us has come to take the speck out of our eye, you know, and to stare unblinkingly and submit really to their careful, kind hand. And it's very hard to deny our appetites in favor of anything. It's hard to do that. And when we have an accurate appraisal of ourselves, guys, here's what we realize. We realize, you know what? In and of myself, I don't have the power to do that. (laughs) I don't have that capacity. I can't say, hey, no problem. I'll just do that. Right on. No worries. I got it. And so Jesus invites us to our Father. He's saying, listen, you're going to live life together with me? Let me tell you what you're going to need. The good things that only your Father can give. And He wants to give them. Look at what He says. He directs us to the Father and He says, okay, verse 7, ask. And what? It's so cool. It will be given to you. Seek and what? You will find. Knock and what? Because it's your new favorite word. It will There it is. Be open to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And before you get too excited, you know, and run off and order a Ferrari because you think that will be good for your humility, and it will help train you to deny your appetites, right? That's not at all what he's saying. He qualifies that statement. He tempers that statement. He places a filter on that statement, and it's a filter that we, taking an accurate appraisal of ourselves in humility, need to bless, praise, and be thankful for. He goes on and he says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I'll be honest, I won't even touch a serpent. Like, 
in a petting zoo, I will not touch it. Nobody does this, is the point for someone that they love. To one of their children. And so then Jesus delivers the punchline. He says, if you then who are evil, and if that bothers you, then take an accurate appraisal of yourself. Because if you have an accurate appraisal of yourself, you're just like, yep, next word, keep going, you know. That's true, no doubt. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give, what kind of gifts, because it's the key, good gifts to your children. In your wisdom, you know better than they do. In your discretion, you know better than they do. You don't give them everything they ask for, do you? Because if you did, you would let their foolishness ruin their lives. But you do give them good gifts. Jesus says, if you, though you're evil, okay, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven and who is perfect and who has unlimited capacities and resources and who has already given you, Jesus. So like what other good thing will He deny you now? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And so just to be clear, Jesus is not saying ask for whatever you want, God will give it to you. Seek whatever you want, God will make sure you find it. Knock on whatever door you want. If you're having trouble, the Lord will kick it down. It's not it. And we know that's not it because He says that our Father only gives us good gifts. And when you have an accurate appraisal of yourself, and this is hard, you realize that because of your limited wisdom, that because of your limited perspective, that because of your limited capacities, because of your innate selfishness and sinfulness and immaturity, there will inevitably be times, key times, strategic times, where you think that what you're asking for from your father is a loaf of bread, but it's a stone. Oh God, give me a fish! And as I define fish, sorry, as you define it, that's a serpent. And I'm not going to give that to you. He's saying that in those moments, your heavenly Father who is greater in His wisdom and perspective and who is flawless in His nature and in His character and infinite in His love toward you, which He has proven by giving you His Son, is going to see your request for what it really is. And He's going to give you what you should have asked for instead. And when you have an accurate appraisal of yourself, do you see how this is the foundation of the whole conversation? Even though you might not understand it, even though it may look like a stone to you, you trust your Father and you thankfully receive it from His hand as that which is good. So the blessed life that Jesus describes throughout the course of this Sermon on the Mount and then invites us into is one that is lived by people who have an accurate appraisal of themselves. It's very humbling. And who then accurately value the gospel and also their Heavenly Father who stands ready to give them every good thing that they need to live life together with Jesus, a life that is designed to conform you to the image of Christ and to show Christ off 
to the rest of the world. And so Jesus then closes by giving us sort of a summary statement of what that life looks like in verse 12, where he says, so, meaning in light of everything we've just talked about, and in light particularly of your Father's goodness to you in Jesus, in your salvation, in giving you bread, even when you ask for a stone, and in light of all that God has done for you, okay, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You want others to approach you in humility? That's how you'd like to be approached? Approach others that way. You want others to help you with a speck in your eye? You're like, I'm not so sure about that one, man. Well, you know, it would be helpful, right? I mean, the cornea is getting scratched. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, there's all kinds of symptoms from the speck. It's amazing how annoying those little things are. It's disabling. You do want help, right? Help others. You want others to lay down or you, to, to their selves to help you out in your hour of need, to be a listening ear, to give you emotionally what you need, to give you physically what you need, to give you spiritually in the form of the gospel what you need. You, you would like that. That's how you want to be treated? Do that for others. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is collecting up the Bible of his day, which was the Old Testament, referred to as the law and the prophets. That was just a way of saying Old Testament. And he's saying this is a life that fulfills God's requirements. It's what life looks like as we learn in humility and in repentance daily to die to ourselves and to take up our cross and by the power of His Spirit in accordance with His Word in community with each other to follow Him. We grow in His likeness, in His holiness, in His righteousness. We grow to be more like Him. So I want to close today by asking you three questions, and they got all kinds of implications, and I'll work out some, but, you know, let the Spirit work out the rest, really. Uh, I find that He does that. It's built around the message. Number one, do you have an accurate appraisal of yourself? You know, have you looked at yourself not in the mirror of our culture? The mirror of our culture is not designed to reveal your flaws. It's designed to cover them up. It's like when you go to the clothing store and they've got one of those skinny mirrors, you know, that just makes you look a little bit better. It lies to you. Sorry, but it does. Sucks you in and then you buy the dress and never quite look the same. He's inviting you to look into the mirror of God's law and all of its righteousness and all of its holiness as it penetrates the thoughts and intentions of your heart, not just your actions. What did Jesus say in this sermon? Earlier on, he said, whoa, hey, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. What? There is a depth and expansiveness to this law that reveals to us the holiness of God, His character. That's the mirror. Take a look in it. Here's what it will produce if God's Spirit is at work in your heart. It will make you poor in spirit as you realize that you are undone. (laughs) But you see the pile of debt, you go, I quit. You know, I I can't... I'm done. 
but it will make you rich in Christ if it drives you to him. For he will deal with your debt. It will make you humble before all other sinners. All, all other sinners. We're all clay pots broken in different places, guys. Who are we to say, you know, that my little fracture is less significant than yours? Broken is broken. Disabled is disabled. And therefore, it will make you useful to them as you stop condemning and start coming with a heart to build up and start approaching in humility and compassion. It will make you capable also of sitting under the careful hand of a brother or sister who comes to you. And that will help get a speck out of your eye. And that is, in fact, a helpful thing. Secondly, do you have an accurate appraisal of the gospel? And what does your life say in response to that question? I mean, you know, what does the MRI actually reveal? Not what would you like it to say, but what does it say? Line up the priority list and ask yourself, where is the kingdom of God on my priority list relative to my appetites, which really is what the rest of the list for the most part is. Thirdly, do you have an accurate appraisal of your heavenly Father? Is he the curmudgeon of heaven? Is he the giver of serpents? Is he the hander out of stones? Or is he the infinitely wise God and you are not him? who only knows how to give you good things and who gave you Jesus and who refuses you nothing that he knows to be good for you. Who is he to you? Lastly, how do you treat other people? And I want you to start in your home. How do you treat them? All right, let's go to your school if you're a student. How do you treat them? Let's go to your office if you work. How do you treat them, your circle of friends? Jesus says, look, treat other people the way that you want them to treat you. To do that, well, that's learning to live life together with Christ. And that's the blessed life. It's different from what we would expect. It's different from what the world designs and hands to us and goes, here's blessing, and then we find to be empty. It's uncomfortable at times. It's not the easy life, but it is joyful and it is purposeful. It is meaningful. It ends in eternity. And on the road to eternity, it takes the invisible Jesus and it makes him visible to the rest of the world as the rest of the world sees, my goodness, this Jesus must exist because I see him in that person. There's nothing else that explains how they live. So for the glory of Christ, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Okay? So you can chew on that this week. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, for when we take an accurate appraisal of our heart, of our life, when we look into the very valid mirror of your law, it is not a skinny mirror. It does not hide our flaws, but it exposes them. It does not make us feel, well, very proud. And yet you expose it to us 
that we might find healing. You reveal us to ourselves and our depravity and all of our sin and all the yuck. God, that you might invite us to yourself. And though we do not deserve it, and the mirror makes that infinitely and abundantly clear, you have made provision for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We praise you that he emptied himself, that we might be made full of him. We thank you for the abundant life that he invites us into life together with him. And we pray now that we would find him in repentance and in faith, that we would meet him spiritually at his table. Lord, that we would feast upon his gospel and be made joyful, that we would look upon him and see everything that we've been looking for all of our life, the pearl of Christ. Grant us that and teach us to live for Him. Lord, do these things for Your glory and for the good of we, Your children. Let us praise You now as we come to Your table in Jesus' name. Amen.